Hi there, I'm Neha Gandhi, COO of Girlboss. I've been working in media for about 15 years, and I have to tell you, today, the industry looks nothing like it did when I graduated from college in 2004. It's a little less shiny, it's harder to stay relevant, and it's much harder to hold people's attention and really make an impact through all the noise. So if you've managed to do all of that consistently for many years across many different publications, well, that really says something. And today's guest, Tina Brown, has done exactly that. She led Vanity Fair magazine as its first female editor-in-chief, bringing the magazine back from near extinction and turning it into something glossy that mixed celebrities and glamour with news and politics in a way that nobody had really done before. She's also the only woman to have ever edited The New Yorker. As you can imagine, doing all of that in an industry where the business leaders and decision makers were very often old school and mostly male meant that Brown got a lot of attention and not always the good kind. It really was incensing. It was always, and they always referred to me as sort of the queen of buzz, as if somehow uh, I'm out there like shilly shallying around in my, you know, in a pair of high heels, which I certainly did wear because I like wearing high heels, but that's so what. You know, I was the most successful editor at Condé Nast. It was completely appropriate. Welcome to Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. On today's show, we hear from editor and writer Tina Brown, who lets us in on what it was like being the boss at 25, what we're all getting wrong about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, and why having young and old employees is a win-win for everyone. Here's our conversation. Tina Brown, welcome to Girlboss Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here. So I'd like to start this conversation with something that's core to Girlboss, uh, which is your definition of success. What does that word mean to you in your life, in your skin today? I think success is about feeling much more about feeling fulfilled in every dimension than it is about simply, you know, one mountain that you happened to climb yesterday. Uh, it's, it's as important for me to feel successful in my private life as in my career life. And, you know, right now I'm feeling successful because I'm doing so many of the things I actually want to do. You know, I'm, I'm producing Women in the World Summits. The summit is, is coming on in April the 10th to 12th, which is convening incredible women from all over the world to talk about how they can save it because we need women to save the world right now. I'm hosting a podcast, TBD, and I'm also just really enjoying now that my kids are, are offhand and, and in their own lives and happy. Um, just having this time with my husband as a kind of back to being a couple, it's, it's a good time for me. That sounds amazing. I want to talk about all of those things, but I'm actually curious about What you're talking about right now sounds like a really well-rounded definition of success. Has that always been the case for you, or how has that idea of what success means evolved for you over time? I think that idea of success does very much evolve, actually. When I was younger, you know, in my 30s, success was all about uh, climbing the absolute mountain in front of my face. You know, it's like, you know, turning around Tatler magazine when I took over as a young editor at the age of 25 in London, a failing magazine. I had to turn it around. Coming to the U.S., uh, turning around Vanity Fair when Vanity Fair had, you know, was launched, it had <clears throat> fallen to two hundred thousand. It was a disaster. My role was to come in and save it, and grow it, which I did. You know, we 
when I time I left, it was at a million circulation and, and a very strong magazine. Then it was about rescuing the New Yorker. I had to come in and turn it around. So it's always been for me, I've always been thrown into these kind of sink or swim uh, challenges. And so you really just think about that challenge. But I think as you you sort of learn in life and you have setbacks and you do a lot of things and you get older, actually, you know, you start to have a much more rounded view of success, which I do now. I want to talk about some of those earlier editor jobs. You were 25 years old when you took over Tattler, and I believe you were 30 when you took over Vanity Fair. Those are, st- I mean, that's pretty young to be editor-in-chief of publications that now feel really shiny and fancy. <laughs> well, um, they weren't very shiny when I took them <laughs> over. Yeah, I, I, had, I did get a very lucky break at the age of 25, but when I took on Tattler in London, you know, I was a young journalist just out of Oxford, and Tatler was really a, such an ailing thing. I mean, it was 10,000 circulation. It was like a shiny sheet. It had really sunk to nothing. It had been a great magazine once upon a time. But at that moment, it had a great title and absolutely no kind of future, really. So we grew it and we made it into a hit. But it wasn't that exciting when I took it over. You know, so I think when you're young, the important thing is to take things on, which maybe don't look as if they have, uh, you know, uh, some huge place in the world, but you can own it and make it your place and make it uh, an exciting place to be. And that is, in a way, the best kind of success to have because you were responsible for that turnaround and you can build it in the way that you wish. So take bigger risks when you are young. Is yes. That- and also identify things that might look a little bit unshiny. You know, I think people tend to be obsessed with, I want to go to work at this hot thing. Actually, you know, go work for something that isn't hot yet and make it hot. And then you really will start to get attention. Right. That's the reputation I feel like you've had and built for so long, this idea that you turn around things that feel on the brink of demise and you turn them into <laughs> the hottest thing in town. Well, thank you. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work. As you know, I, I, I started something, Talk Magazine, that uh, that I couldn't make work. And I think setbacks are part of that of that growth learning that, that I just mentioned. I think having Talk fail actually made me think much more about what makes a successful life, you know, and, and it is all of the components. It's not just that thing, that project. I want to talk a little bit about that project because we like to talk about failure a lot here at Girlboss. It's a huge part of Sophia's story, which she's been really open and vulnerable about. But we also just believe that, you know, if you're not failing, it's probably because you're not taking big enough swings. Um, So I'm curious about what it felt like in that moment. I think you're talking a little bit about what you learned coming out of it on the other side, but in the moment where you realized it wasn't going to work, where you were going to have to walk away from this project that had been, you know, feted in this incredible way, you'd had, you know, huge opening parties and there was so much buzz around it. In the moment where you realized it wasn't going to work, but you hadn't made it public, what did that feel like for you? Well, it, it was a devastating thing because I'd had three big successes and Then I left The New Yorker and went to work for Harvey Weinstein, (laughs) which, when you look back, was not the smartest thing anyone could do in life. I guess I thought, I know I thought, that I could actually sort of grow a a, a brand that was beyond a magazine. In fact, I was ahead of my time in that because I felt I didn't just want to do a magazine. I wanted to do something that would be a magazine plus movies, plus books, plus, uh, you know, radio or today it would be podcast and so that's what Harvey wanted to do and so he asked me to come and do it it seemed like a fantastic uh, opportunity but of course 
working with him was really, really not an experience I would ever want to repeat. And it threw me off my game so much, you know, having to deal with, with this raging, crazy personality in, in, you know, looming over me all the time. It was very, very difficult to keep focus. And the magazine was a really good magazine, I have to say. It has some of the best material I think I've ever published in it. But the combination of uh, the ownership with Harvey, which was so difficult and problematic, and the fact that then 9-11 happened and all the advertising uh, disappeared and then it wasn't a viable thing to continue doing. And, you know, it was a very distressing because, of course, everybody danced upon my grave. <laughs> Women failing is like, oh, my God, a fall. It's just the juiciest thing. Everyone just loves that. So I'm the front page of the New York Post. And... It was very, it was very tough, but mostly because I, I, I love my work so much. You know, I felt I was in mourning for my child, which was this magazine that um, I loved as much as I loved Vanity Fair or The New Yorker or Tatler. I loved it just as much. I had an extraordinary staff who've gone on to kind of populate uh, the upper echelons of media all over the place in, in, in very major ways. And I found them and nurtured them and, you know, grew them and from all kinds of you know, places that uh, other people didn't know about. And so it was very, very painful. And it took me a couple of years, really, to get over it. And what I did was I just sort of went off uh, and decided to go back to my first love, which was writing. And I basically holed up in my house at the beach and I wrote my biography of Princess Diana that, you know, became a bestseller, which kind of sol solved the wound somewhat, you know, to have gone from doing something that had not worked to something that did work. But it was a very, it's very painful because you just feel bereft. It really is like a death. Do you have any advice for women who are going through something similar, maybe at a smaller scale, maybe their face isn't plastered on the cover of the New York Post, but they're feeling that real mourning and that loss for something that has failed, and maybe they don't have a book in them. How <laughs> would you recommend they sort of get through it? Well, I think firstly you have to uh, sort of confront why it went wrong and, and fully own the, the places where you made mistakes. Uh, of judgment or didn't see it coming. Uh, I just think you have to take the tools that you have to and the wisdom that you have and sort of reinvent yourself perhaps in a different category and not be ashamed of it at all. I mean, I'm not ashamed of having had um, a setback like that. I, I'm not ashamed of it at all. I think that it's very, very important in the course of any good career if you take any risks, some of them aren't going to work out. And I actually, when I come to hiring people, I never I never mind somebody who has got a failure on their resume at all. In fact, I think, hey, this is good. They're not going to fail on my watch. <laughs> they had, <laughs> they, they learned something. Like they're, they're more likely to be people with a bit more wisdom. You know, a little bit of hubris gets knocked out of you when that happens. And I think that's actually a pretty useful thing to have happen. And I think the people who've had a setback are often more reflective. So... The only thing that would concern me is if they're trying to kind of talk their way past it, if they're trying to say everything about what I've done has worked, you know, and then try to kind of spin. If somebody says to me, look, I did, I've had, I did all these things, these worked, this one didn't, that I respect. Speaking of spin, though, I think something that we've always been curious about here is you have a larger-than-life persona and people are very interested and there is that element of schadenfreude when a woman fails, certainly, but when a powerful woman fails. And I'm curious about damage control. What did you learn about through that experience? Because I think we have this vision of you as your own Olivia Pope. Um, <laughs> Actually, I was lucky not to have that happen in the era of, of social media. I mean, I think it's very difficult today. We're living in a very punishing moment, you know, with the call-out culture that we live in, where 
people have to put one step wrong and suddenly a kind of flash mob descends on you on social media just chomping and, and devouring your carcass and kicking you to the curb. You know, it's it's very brutal right now, our culture. I, I think it's a scary culture, as a matter of fact. The only solution to a failure is just to change the subject. I mean, you have to just go and do something else, you know, get back on that horse, start doing something else and do it with diligence, keep your head down and have a success. I mean, after... Uh, doing the Diana Chronicles, I then decided I did. I had thought I wasn't going to be an editor again after what I'd experienced. Really, I didn't really want to be particularly. And then Barry Diller, the the, the media uh, entrepreneur, came to me and said, "I want you to start an online site for me, which has the sort of same kind of sensibility that Vanity Fair has of a kind of high low mix. I think it could be great." Didn't really want to, but then I started working with digital a digital shop, sort of creating a look and a feel. And I launched The Daily Beast, which became an enormous fun for me. I mean, that really helped me to kind of totally shed any kind of angst I had about what I'd been through because I was working – when I took over The Daily Beast, I was the kind of den mother to all of the kind of digital kids and and I was the sort of the grown-up and hired two or three other grown-ups and then the rest of them were all people in their 20s and early 30s who were just these fantastic young young journalists and editors and uh, video people and so on who who really were such an incredible team and uh, it was just like being back at the Tatler and I had a fantastic fun with that project it felt like I had nothing to lose with that and I, I loved it because it really felt like a kind of a I do have nothing to lose. I've experienced a failure. I had nothing to lose. What was the most interesting thing that you learned from the younger staff there? I mean, do you believe in this idea of reverse mentorship? I do, actually. I love that. I mean, I love working with with a younger team. But, you know, what's interesting is the younger team also liked the veterans on the staff, too. I mean, uh, one of our editors, uh, writers, Michael Daly, who's like a sort of 60-ish kind of old, like Damon Runyon news guy, the kids just loved him, you know, because he had so much kind of wisdom to impart. So I actually think the best combination is that sort of veteran expertise and, and youthful uh, experimentation and daredevilness. I can imagine that all of those kids certainly and many others would, um, you know, crawl all over themselves to have you as a mentor. But I'm curious who you would consider your mentors or did you seek out mentors as you were coming up in the industry? Well, you know, I, I was a leader so young that, you know, I didn't come up the traditional way, you know, because I was an editor-in-chief at 25 and I've, I've really only ever been a boss, which is a weird a weird thing. I sort of learned how to be a leader on, on the job, you know. Obviously, I learned a tremendous amount from my husband. You know, he's, he's 25 years older than me and he was a very famous editor in London, uh, sort of like the Ben Bradley, if you like, of, of London journalism <laughs> at the Sunday Times. And I wrote for the Sunday Times and attracted his attention and and we fell madly in love and then I left the Sunday Times because I didn't want to be in a place where you know I was I was in love with the boss and uh, he really has been my toughest critic and my best guide and mentor really throughout my my whole career so I think I've been lucky to have of course that that great support at home. You know what I'm really excited about this summer? Summer weather in Los Angeles on a beautiful college campus surrounded by ambitious women from all over the world. No, I'm not taking a college class this summer. I'm actually talking about the Girl Boss Rally that's happening on the UCLA campus this summer, the weekend of June 29th. If you haven't been to the Girl Boss Rally, I really hope you can make it out to this one. It's the only rally we're doing this year, and it's gonna be our best one yet. 
Expect two full days of workshops, panels, and inspiring talks with some of today's most inspiring entrepreneurs, small business owners, executives, and thought leaders. You don't want to miss this. To find out more and register for the Girl Boss Rally, just go to girlbossrally.com. Hope to see you all there. How do you think about sort of that balance of, you know, considering your partner, your mentor, but also leaning on them as a partner? Or do you, is it a different hat that you wear when you think about your relationship in different ways? Well, we're just incredible sort of partners and thought partners as well as, uh, you know, husband and wife. I mean, we just are like kindred spirits. I mean, we, we are just obsessed with new, about news all the time. You know, at breakfast, we go out for breakfast together every day to the local diner and we kind of take with us kind of newspapers, iPads, <laughs> everything that we can read on. And we just bowl through a huge kind of news buffet for the next hour and a half. And, and we're exchanging views all the way through it. It's just sort of wonderful. It's, it's a great bond we have. It's like enjoying music together or whatever. We, we just we just love the news. And so that has always been our great bond, I think. We have two kids together. So that that's, you know, we're very, we're very close. And the whole family is very close, actually. My daughter and I, again, we're the best of friends. She's also in media. She was at Vice for four years and now has just gone to work with Alex uh, Gibney's company at Jigsaw. And my my son, Georgie, uh, who's now 32, he he had Asperger's. And so he was a great sort of challenge as a kid who had um, already a disability that had to be, you know, very carefully raised. And and a wonderful boy he really is. But he, he took me into a whole other arena of of life's uh, more important things and just simply being successful at things. He, he's been my biggest world enlarger, I would say. I've read a little bit about how you think about, you know, how you've hired a lot of working mothers and you really made what feels like a concerted effort to hire working mothers into senior editor roles, particularly when you're at The New Yorker. I'd love to hear more about how your own experience as a mother, but also as a boss, sort of shaped you and shaped that newsroom shaped that editorial space mm-hmm. how did you lead differently well it's very interesting I had my two children you know when I was at Vanity Fair and then went to the New Yorker when my daughter was about three and my son was about seven or eight and you know then I had all of these women who had children sort of the same age and we were like the a secret society in a way because all of the women there and I think there were four senior editors uh, who had children the same age as that mine were all round about and so everybody had the same concerns. I mean, our big topic of conversation always, when it, when it wasn't about the magazine, was about the big juggle. Like, how are we going to, how do we do this? You know, I mean, backstage, it was all chaos all the time. And how we were going to figure out how to be hard-charging, journalistic women who were bringing out this very important magazine with a tremendous amount of work. I mean, I used to go home and you know, I'd have to read into the small hours of the night. But we also wanted to be mothers and good ones. And so we all kind of worked out this um, way of working where we would just really accelerate our sort of work speed in the last hour of the day between sort of 4.30 and 5.30. We'd be all like, you could just tell the focus amongst those women. We want to get it back, you know, to our kids. I would then rush out the office and be home for for, for, for dinner. And then I'd, we'd resume again when our kids were in bed. So between the, the hours of about, you know, 10 and, and 1 o'clock in the morning, frankly, um, the in those days it was fax machines. The fax machines would be whirring, you know, between all of these women who had kids. We would do so much work deep in the night or first thing in the morning. 
early. And it was like we never slept, I think. I mean, the casualty was sleep. But we got it all done. We just got it all done. And everybody had their own improvised way of doing stuff. And um, I, I actually managed to persuade my mom to come from London uh, with my father. We rented the apartment across the landing and she was there when my kids got home. So it was kind of, I was very lucky to have that ability to bring my mom in to kind of widen the whole kind of support system that I had. Others didn't have that. But some, you know, some had siblings or something living nearby who could help to pick up the kids. It was always about this patchwork of how we were going to figure it out. And I'm not sure it's changed, really. I, I, for all the talk about work-life balance, there really isn't any one solution for all of this. You know, it's, it's, it just is a great uh, pull on you all the time about where you're going to put your focus at any one time. And I think the notion that you can just somehow breeze through this with some rosebud of a solution. In fact, one of the things that I used to say to women all the time when I had young children, I would always be imagining that there was another woman out there who had got it figured out. You know, that there was mm. just, if I could just meet that one woman, she would tell me the answer to the magic question. So once I said to this a woman who was a very high-powered publisher, and I discovered she had three kids, and I said to her, you know, how, how do you do it? It's always the question, like, how do you do it? And she just looked at me and she said, I was tired for 17 years. <laughs> and that is kind of the answer to the question. Did you ever feel any guilt around the balance of, you know, what you give up? It sounds like the thing you really give up is sleep and on some level your health. But I feel like life as a parent is kind of just a series of compromises, of choices. Absolutely. I felt guilty all the time, whatever I was doing. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, I'd have to go to a sales conference, right? It's the time when the editor's supposed to be there with the publisher or whatever. You know, and I would I would be in agony because suddenly, you know, the publisher would say that they were doing it, you know, in Colorado or something. And it, I knew this was just too much travel. It was like I was going to waste away a, a day. My first thought was always, you know, oh, my God, you know, I can't be away more for, than two nights. And this is going to be three nights. And then, you know, how was I going to do this? And so, yeah, one is in a constant state of stress about it. And uh my husband was very, very supportive. I mean, he's a, he was a great husband, but he was extraordinarily busy too. He came to the U.S. and, and started to run Random House as, as the president of Random House. So he wasn't exactly a sort of a stay-at-home husband. And that's, of course, where my mother became hugely important to me because knowing that she was there made it really help with the guilt. Yeah, guilt is, is huge, and it's such a bummer. It is such a bummer, but it is unavoidable. Yeah. It feels a little bit like we're having this conversation through this like beautiful lens of, um, you know, a village of women raising their kids together and coming together and working together. But there is another sort of piece of the story, which is um, this boys club that you talk about a lot. You were the first woman to edit Vanity Fair. Uh, you're the only woman who's ever edited The New Yorker. And you say something really interesting about sort of dealing with sexism, this idea that the best strategy is success. Do you have any examples of ways in which people have underestimated you or pushed back on you? All the time. And you know, the thing that was really frustrating to me throughout both Vanity Fair and The New Yorker is the sort of belittling language that's used about women, which somehow is just very subtle, but it's a way of sort of minimizing your achievement. Like when I get like magazine editor of the year, it's like she puts out a frisky, lively, <laughs> magazine that has plenty of buzz and, and all the words used about it are just belittling words, you know. I would be publishing, you know, really gritty journalism, fantastically sort of um, accomplished foreign journalism very often. And also, of course, you know, great celebrity covers and 
But the journalism was was really strong, and that's what I was winning uh, journalism prizes for. But the, the citations always sat, made it sound as if it was some kind of uh, little buzzy fun thing, you know. And then again at the New Yorker, it was the same thing. When I won awards at the New Yorker, or when when I was written about at the New Yorker, it was always that kind of tone. I mean, one um, one of the male writers at the New Yorker when I came in said she was the girl in the wrong dress, and I just thought, <laughs> what? wow, you know. <laughs> This is so belittling, really. And it's just what women have to deal with all the time, the way that they're written about. I, I actually got a, 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 a sort of a press release about a very accomplished woman editor who was leaving her position recently. And the male boss sent out this email about her and said, you know, she was a genial, good listener. It was like, what? I mean, she was actually really a dynamic woman. <laughs> and it made her sound like some kind of jolly, uh, sort of, you know, nice, unthreatening. I mean, virtually use the word nice about her. And you just thought, it's just not right. Well, even I mean, I was looking back at the New York Times announcement of the news that you were leaving Vanity Fair and you were taking over the New Yorker. And it reads breathlessly like a gossip column item. All of the language that they use feels a little bit, you know, New York is shocked. It's, you know, explosive. You built the hot, hot magazine. There is a lot of that language that just feels not openly hostile, but a little surprised that you would be taking over a title with the gravitas of Mm -hmm. The New Yorker. And I felt incensed just reading that today. I know, it was. It was incensed. It was really was incensing. It was always, and they always referred to me as sort of the queen of buzz, as if somehow mm-hmm. uh, I'm out there like shilly shallying around in my, you know, in a pair of high heels, which I certainly did wear because I like wearing high heels. But that's so what. You know, I was the most successful editor at Condé Nast. It was completely appropriate. It is frustrating uh, at times, and it is a very, very female. Uh, complaint. You know, it's it's it just doesn't happen to men on the job who are doing the same job. Do you just swallow your rage? Well, sometimes I swallow it. Sometimes I, <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I've got, I, I realize it's a no, it's a no win, unfortunately, to complain about it. You know, you just don't want to look like you're whining. That is always the big weapon against you. I mean, one New York Magazine profile of me uh, about seven or eight years ago began, uh, Tina Brown has always got ahead by being nice to uh, old Jewish men. <laughs> Jeez. It's like, what? I mean, I'm sorry, but those were the people who owned the magazines that I worked with. It's not how I got the jobs, guys. I got the job because I knew how to do it and did very well at them, you know. So, yeah, it, it's it's frustrating. It's it's, And I think it's somehow more vexing to women, that stuff, almost than some of the more dramatic stuff. I mean, sexual harassment is a horror, and and we've seen it again and again, particularly, I think, amongst uh, fast food uh, workers, you know, domestic workers. It's awful how women are sexually harassed and have no redress, and that is, is beginning to be something that's very, very big in terms of getting the right attention. But some of the most vexing stuff to women, I think, is the kind of thing I'm talking about, which is this subtle belittling of women just in this drip, drip, insidious way that kind of takes the wind out of your sails and makes you feel somehow lesser. The other thing that's very interesting about women is that when they fall, nobody ever, there's no safety net for women in terms of things being offered. I mean, I've noticed again and again that men in jobs who fail swiftly get, you know, a board position or you know, they're offered a big think tank to run or they get picked up and they're given a very similar job, you know, in a different town. or And that doesn't, I mean, of all the women I know who've, who've lost jobs sort of at the top, as it were, 
they're not offered other jobs. They have to kind of go off and figure out something uh, themselves. And I don't quite know why it is that there is no safety net there for women in the same way. I think it's something women need to do for each other much more, which is to create the kind of network of sort of support and bounce back that men seem to have cultivated so well for themselves. I mean, it's remarkable how they continue to fail upwards. They fail upwards and upwards and they move along and they go to some other job. They were just a catastrophe somewhere and lo and behold, they get rehired at a huge salary somewhere else within about a year. And you think, how did that happen? You know, how did how did anybody decide that that, that credential warranted this rehire, as it were? But I think it happens because they just step up for one another and a kind of club sets in and and they know how to get it done. And it's just remarkable. Women, I think, don't know how to do that. We need our own version of a boys club. <laughs> we do. <laughs> that brings me to the a point about, you know, sort of the most spectacular of public failures that I think we're all talking about right now because of the documentary about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. What she did was obviously, there's no gray area there. It is black and white. She made some big mistakes and she defrauded people. And it's a fascinating story. But I do wonder, are we thinking about her differently? Are we dismissing her differently? Are we talking about her differently because of that thing you're talking about, the schadenfreude about um, women who fail? I think when we're looking at the Elizabeth Holmes story, perhaps in the wrong way, because to me it's a story about a whole bunch of old white men <laughs> were so naive and so utterly smitten by her uh, sort of charismatic blonde uh, uh, shtick, as it were, that they didn't ask any questions. To me it's about the men who were fools. Who did no I mean, diligence. Think, no due diligence. I mean, if you're going to take Jim Mathis, who was like Secretary of Defense sitting there, like believing her, Henry Kissinger sitting there believing her, George Schultz, the former Secretary of State, they didn't ask any smart questions because they were so naive about her. That to me, they're the ones in a way who I say sort of shame on because she was clearly a charlatan and a, a really uh, spectacular charlatan actually. I mean, I've never seen any con person be so successful. Millions of dollars she raised with her absolutely crazy, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of absurd Un, untested uh, joke uh, Heath Robinson machine that she had that nobody even wanted to even open it up and look at it and realize that this thing was just a, like a kind of high school chemistry project. And yet it was these men, you know, on the board, big spectacular men with huge careers that fell for it. So this is a story of male folly, not, not just about Elizabeth Holmes, the charlatan. I love that take. You have a summit coming up with Women in the World, which uh, you spun out of the Daily Beast, right? You were treating that almost yes. like a side project and then you took it yes. with you when you left? Yes, that's correct. It was started at the Beast and was there, I think, for three or four years before I took it out and took it independent and realized that's what I really wanted to spend my time doing. So you have Oprah speaking at this upcoming summit, is that right? Yes, we do. We have an amazing lineup, actually. We have Oprah, we have Brie Larson, we have uh, Priyanka Chopra. You know, it's 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 a fabulous lineup, and it's uh, it's the anniversary. It's tenth anniversary this year, and the theme is "Can Women Save the World?" Wow! Congratulations, ten years. How do you wrangle women like that? I mean, do you just call them all <laughs> up and say, "Hey, Oprah, it's Tina. Want to come well, speak?" You know, I, to be honest, I I think that they they accept because they are excited by the programming. I mean, we were talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, you know, three years ago before Me Too. We were talking about the rise of white nationalism and white supremacy, you know, two, two and a half years ago. 
we're just ahead of the curve because I have with me tremendous news producers. We're all journalists. It's not a conference in the way that other people think of conferences. It's really live journalism and it's really live storytelling, uh, which f- shows the world through the eyes of women. In many ways, it's um, it's a bit like the formula of Vanity Fair, where we combine uh, the news, the grit, but also the, the sizzle, you know, so it, it keeps people in their seats. It's very exciting. It sounds incredible. I had the privilege of attending once, and it's such a special, special experience. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you came. <laughs> you know what I'm loving, though, at the moment is doing my podcast, TBD. I started that uh, last November, and I didn't know what that would be. But, I, you know, having done magazines and live events and a weekly magazine and a monthly magazine and a book and a website, you know, the one thing I hadn't done was a podcast. And so I decided I wanted to try it. And I've had, I'm having so much fun because it's a very sort of low-intensity medium in the sense that you really get to talk to people and let them think aloud. We had Hillary Clinton came on, actually, and she was wonderful in such a kind of relaxed interesting mood and not not feeling that she was rushed or that she had to kind of that she was under under attack. I love that. I've been listening um, and you really do have incredible guests and you give them the room to have meaningful conversations, which is so fascinating and interesting to listen to. I want to ask a little bit about sort of the choice to shift mediums like that, because podcasting is obviously something that it feels like everyone is doing today, and it feels like at the forefront of what's happening in media, but what's happening in media seems fascinating and weird and kind of terrifying these days. Do you think it's all doom and gloom? Do you see a lot of hope and potential for media as we know it today? I think it's a very stressful time, frankly, to be in media. And the fight for quality is so, it's such a kind of, it, it's a tiring crusade to, to if you care about quality. And uh, no one has yet been able to really figure out the business model for sustaining journalism in a way that, you know, you can stay alive. So thousands of journalists are being laid off, you know, news organizations are folding all over the place. And although there is such a kind of rich banquet of great new content, it's so hard to get the focus. If you have a great story, how do you get it the attention? Because it's just overwhelmed by um, other content. So finding a way to bring your story to attention and make it, you know, sustainable as a business is just the most agonizing question that has to be figured out. It probably won't be figured out actually by anybody in journalism. And this is the way the problem sometimes gets solved completely from the outside. You know, some some technician in Sweden or something will figure out a business model that actually works. But right now, the smartest minds in media can't seem to figure this out. Let's all hope for that guy to show up sooner rather than later. Would you start your career in media if you were starting today? Would you advise young people to take jobs in media? Well, I think I'd probably go into documentary making today. I think sometimes the documentary right now is maybe the best way to go about it because it, it's got more of a chance of getting traction. So maybe that's what I would do today if I was me 30 years ago now. Mm. My last question is really just, you know, what's your best advice for someone who wants to come work for you? Someone who's showing up and is going to interview with Tina Brown tomorrow. (laughs) What do you hope that they show up with or don't show up with? I hope they show up with some kind of something that solves a problem for me. You know, sometimes when young people come in for interviews, they spend a lot of time talking about what they want, right? About, you know, 
I'm, I want to do this job because of this. I want to do this job because of that. And you sometimes think, well, what are you going to bring me? Like, <laughs> what are you going to do for me? I know what I can do for you. But what can you do for me that is going to make my life easier in some way? And if someone says, look, I've been watching all the videos of what you're doing and I think that I see, you know, an opening to do this that I could be very helpful with. That kind of is the kind of person I'm interested in. Yeah. What's the white space? Yes. Tina, thank you so much for being with us today. This is a real pleasure. So fun to talk to you. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Tina Brown for joining us. Oh, and one more thing before you go. I'd like to ask if you could do us a small favor. If you like what you heard on today's episode, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions on who you'd like us to feature on the show or any ideas about how we can do better, send us an email at podcasts at girlboss.com. Talk soon.